I'll turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book, or the short little letter, as it is, of Philemon. It sits just before Hebrews. And let's just ask God's blessing on this time as we study his word together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that through your word you reveal so much to us that we need to know and understand, or you reveal the just wonder of your plan, that from before the foundation of the world, you had already decreed that you would send your son to be the payment in full for our sins. And we thank you, Lord, that throughout the ages, uh, we have recorded in your word, Lord, various accounts and situations, Lord, that all point to that completed work of your son on the cross. As we look at this letter this morning, we have yet again another reminder of the incredible sacrifice that your son, that our Lord, our Savior Jesus made for us. And we just pray that you would grant us understanding and wisdom this morning as we turn to your word. Help us to see with spiritual eyes and to receive that which you have us for, uh, this for this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's only a, a short little book, 25 verses, but this letter that Paul writes is really packed full, as we'll see as we go through it. We've got a model here. It's a story of grace and forgiveness. And it really is a perfect summary of the gospel acted out by the principal characters. And those principal characters, of course, are Paul, uh, which we see as a type of Christ, Philemon as a type of the Father. We see this runaway slave, Onesimus, as a type of us. Everyone who's run away and rebelled at any point, uh, of course, it speaks of each one of us in our situation before God. We see Tychius here as a type of the Holy Spirit. We'll see others come into into play in a moment. Philemon as well, uh, we'll see. He was an elder at this church at Coloss. Uh, the church met in his home. Uh, he doesn't seem to have been the pastor of such as the church, but the church actually met there. But the letter is actually a private letter to him and to his immediate family, but it's interesting that it then becomes public. Uh, the greetings at the beginning and at the end imply that it was also intended for, for public hearing, but it is a private letter. Um, Paul is going to present this very audacious request, but we'll see that he was willing to bear the cost of his request to ensure the forgiveness and restoration of this young runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus himself was a servant, he was a slave of Philemon's, and we don't understand quite why, but at some point uh, he stole from Philemon and ran away to Rome. Now, at that point, the death penalty could have quite easily associated uh, this uh, had he been caught, but instead... He finds refuge in Rome uh, and he comes into contact with Paul uh, and becomes a Christian, becomes a believer. And as we read in verse 11, he was once, in one sense, worthless. Um, certainly once he'd left uh, his master, but again begins to live up to his name. His name means profitable. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because the Lord always sees us as we can be. Often we see ourselves as we are, or we can be quite down and melancholy, and yet the Lord sees what we can be. And his name uh, that was given to him before he had any chance to shape or mold his own direction in life, the name that he had been given was profitable. And certainly we'll see that's exactly what he becomes. Uh, now, although Paul would have liked 
to have kept him as a friend and a helper in Rome, because clearly we see that he'd become a real benefit and a blessing to Paul. Paul actually insists that he goes back to his wronged master in Coloss. And again, it's interesting because we, we see that he lives, he leaves as a pagan, but returns as a Christian. And Philemon is asked to receive him as a beloved brother. You know, it could be assumed that Philemon obviously did accept him because we have this account. Um, and he responded to Paul's appeal. And then this letter obviously gets circulated as a result of that. And this all occurs about the time that Paul received news from Ephrasus of the threat to the faith in Colossus. So it's interesting how the Lord used this to bolster and to strengthen and encourage the church that were there. Uh, God's timing is always perfect. And things that we sometimes look on as just being natural events, uh, we actually start to realize that well, they were God-inspired uh, events. And God is working uh, in ways that we don't always get to see. We find that Paul entrusted Tychicus uh, with this responsibility of taking Anesimus and bringing him safely back to stop him being arrested or taken by the slave catchers. No, ma- no doubt there was people out looking for this individual and there had possibly been a bounty on him uh, at that time, as was typical. But also to deliver the letter at the same time to the Laodiceans, which probably was the Ephesian letter, very close to each other, uh, and also the letter to the Colossians. And obviously this one that we're looking at here, delivered personally to Philemon. And the letter appears to stop short of asking Philemon directly to give Onesimus his freedom. Paul simply bases it upon the relationship they have. And he doesn't say that uh, Onesimus should be set free. Um, That's not, in a sense, Paul's mandate to ask for that. And also it may not have been a good thing. It's better that that, that he stays uh, in this family he's looked after, provided for, and has this opportunity to grow as a believer. Uh, and the social conditions, from what we understand at the time, also could have ended up uh, with Anesimus if he'd been given complete freedom, uh, being in a position where he couldn't provide for himself. So there's there's lots of intricacies that we can start to build into this and see as we develop it. But estimates suggest that there were around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at the time uh, that this took place. So it was not uncommon to, to have slaves, and certainly not uncommon that some of them would run away. So this is by no means a, a unique kind of situation. Uh, and men and women were traded, you know, just not counted as human beings as such. They were just something of value whilst they were doing a particular work or, or task. The average slave sold for 500 denarii, uh, one, sorry, one denarii was, was one day's wage. So you're talking about two years' salary. So the, the cost of a slave was significant. So for a slave to run away to lose a slave, uh, it would have had an impact on a family, and there's obviously that's why there was particularly a, or typically a bounty on the heads of those that had done this. Educated and skilled slaves could be sold for as much as 50,000 uh, denarii. So you get, get the idea uh, of the value of these individuals, their masters. A master could free a slave, or a slave could buy his freedom if he could raise the money. We see an example, Acts 22, verse 28, uh, gives us that. And if a slave ran away, the master would register the name and description with the officials, uh, and the slave, as I said already, would be on that kind of wanted list, uh, and there'd be a bounty on his head. Uh, the law did permit a master to execute a rebellious slave. Uh, these are all the things that at that time of the Roman Empire existed. So uh, Philemon would have been facing a dilemma here. Okay, If he forgave Onesimus, here's a problem. 
What would the other masters think? And of course, what would the other slaves think as well? Those that served him. If he punished him, how is that going to affect his testimony as a believer? Um, because now, of course, Onesimus has become a Christian. So he's facing a difficult situation. And you need to remember as well that one day Philemon is at home and suddenly there's a knock on the door. And he opens the door and Tychius is there with this letter in his hand but standing next to him is Onesimus. And before Philemon gets to read the letter, he's confronted face to face with his slave. It's very easy to look at the letter and presume that Philemon reads the letter and then he's going to have the opportunity to think over this before he meets him. But no, Onesimus is there. And it must have produced all kind of emotions and feelings and so on. He'd been, you know, robbed by this individual. And initially he may not have understood why He's been brought to the door. Maybe he'd been captured. Maybe he did. I don't know whether he knew uh, Tychius or not. We don't have that information. But it's interesting just to kind of imagine Philemon's initial reaction. And then as he's handed this letter, and he opens this, this short letter and reads it, and he realizes that this slave that had cost him, that had run away, that had stolen and everything else, has now become a believer. And that he, of course, had been brought to faith in Jesus through Paul, who clearly Philemon knew and respected very highly. Um, so it's kind of a very interesting situation. And, you know, you, sometimes we read these things without thinking about the emotion that's involved. And, you know, we can look at it and think, oh, well, that's easy in that kind of context. We, we're very good at looking at Scripture and thinking it doesn't quite apply to our lives. But actually it does. You know, scripture is right where we are. It deals with the kind of emotions and the challenges and the difficulties that we're presented with in our lives in all sorts of ways, shapes, and form. Um, and these were just ordinary people. You know, these weren't, Philemon wasn't some super spiritual giant. You know, there must have been part of him that immediately wanted to, to say, right, that's him, hand him over to the authorities and have him put to death. There must have been part of that there. There must have been part that wanted to, to somehow beat him and, and get, get, get back what he'd t- stolen and, yeah, there's, there's a very natural kind of human wanting justice in a sense. And yet he's brought face to face with the reality that his own sin has been forgiven. That his own debt has been covered by Jesus. And now he's being asked to do the same thing. So let's, let's jump into the text. Let's go through some and we'll look at it as we go through. So the letter is Philemon, and I, I can't help but think this is at the door. I mean, I don't think that, you know, maybe they got invited in, but the doors say so the knock on the door, Philemon opens it, Tychius is there, hands him the letter, standing there is Onesimus, and Philemon reads Paul straight away. He realizes that there's something here that's more than the ordinary. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul states it as it is. He says who he is, he says where he is. He's in prison in Rome. Philemon would probably have known that at the time anyway. He knew Paul. He respected Paul. And Timothy, our brother. And to Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. It's a very warm greeting. Immediately, Paul is not trying to butter him up, but just simply saying, look, we're brothers. We're united in Christ. And before Philemon even starts to get into the, the content of this, it's that reminder that in Christ we're all one. None of us are better than others. There is no slave or free. There's no male or female. There's no Jew or Gentile. In Christ we are all one. And straight away at the beginning of this letter, 
That reminder is there. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. We're in this together. Verse 2. And to our beloved Aphia, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, it seems to be his wife, Aphia, and his son. And to the church in thy house. So Paul is sending this greeting to the family, first of all. The family, of course, are the ones that are most affected by the situation. But also a greeting to the church from Paul, the men in the house. And of course, as we said many times, the early church met from house to house. They didn't have these lavish, ornate buildings that typically we see and often associate with church. I find it very interesting how often people talk about church and they look at a building and they think the building's the church. And you know, The church is the body of Christ. The church is us. You can't go to church because the church is you, as has been said before. And this is how churches met. They met from house to house. And Philemon, presumably wealthy to some degree, the fact that he's got his own servants, uh, and the fact that he's willing to open up his home and invite people to come and meet. And it's interesting because we don't know who the other members of the church were. We don't know how big this congregation was. But no doubt amongst those that were in the church that were meeting in his house, there was a a, a wide range, just as we have in any congregation. There may have been others that were quite wealthy and had their own servants. There may have been servants that were believers, that were part of the church. You know, and when they came together as a church, there was no hierarchy. There was no masters and slaves and so on. We're all servants of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? Though Paul was in prison, he doesn't say, Paul, a prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm right where Jesus wants me to be. You can't be anywhere other than where Jesus wants you to be because he's in complete control of every situation, of every circumstance. There's nothing that will happen to you that is not filtered through his goodness and grace. We read in, of course, Romans chapter 8, that all things work together for good for those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. Paul recognized that. Paul knew that whatever situation he was in, whatever state he was in, he'd learn to be content. He'd come to that place of realizing I really can trust God. You know, over the next few weeks, I really want to try and help you see how much you really can trust God for everything in your lives, every little detail, how he's in complete control, and how God has gone to such extraordinary lengths to bring us into this relationship. And won't allow anything to happen to us that he has not already allowed for his glory, for his purpose, and for our benefit also. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Rome didn't hold him. Rome was actually chained to Paul. It was the other way around. It gave Paul a great opportunity to witness. How many people got converted through Paul's ministry whilst he was in prison. But we find later a number of Christians in senior positions within the Roman authority structure. How many of those were a result of Paul's witnessing of his faithfulness? But Paul knew that there was no power on earth that could enslave him because he was already a servant, a bond slave, as we read elsewhere 
of Jesus Christ. You know, the idea of a bond slave in the Old Testament, someone who was a servant and had got that opportunity to go free and said, I don't want to go free. I want to carry on serving my master. That's what Jesus, that's what um, Paul had done. He said, I want to serve Jesus. I want to be his bond slave. Julos is the, the word in the Greek. And typically the Hebrew way of doing it was you take the servant to the door of the house and you pierce their ear and so on and that the earring would be a, a constant reminder that they had willingly chosen to serve their master. Paul recognizes that. He, he's the servant of Jesus. And nothing will change that. Nothing is more powerful or more, there's no greater authority. <clears throat> As we've said already, Seems that Aphia was the wife of Philemon. And if so, interestingly, she'd have been in charge typically of the household duties for slaves. So her response in this is also key. Paul doesn't leave her out in the greeting um, because her reaction is also important. And as we've said already, Archippus here, uh, the son of Philemon, um, seems to be, uh, from what most commentators think, um, He's noticed that the uh, order here, uh, he's listed after his parents in terms of his parents first and then him. Also, this greeting to the church, you know, we're all to be living epistles. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2, Paul there writes and says to the Corinthians that you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. And in 2 Corinthians 3.3 we read, For as much as you manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the hearts of the heart. I just commented a moment ago, the church was this congregation... And they'll also have to recognize Anesimus as a Christian. So all these individuals that are listed at the beginning all have some part to play in this. You know, Philemon initially, but his wife, his son, and the church all had that responsibility of accepting that this slave had run away, had stolen things, who owed this debt to the family, who'd hurt the family, who they obviously cared for. They were going to have to welcome back as a Christian, as a brother in Christ. And again, all that puts pressure on Philemon because there's others watching. There's others involved in this. It's not just a, a private affair in that sense. You know, Paul, if Paul had not included the church in that salutation, then they might have gossiped when they saw Onesimus had returned. But Paul tries to make this thing open to stop any rumour-mongering or anything else going on. As I said, the churches typically met in homes up until about 200 AD. It's not until we get to the 3rd century that the buildings and so on come along. Uh, and Paul frequently mentions um, churches in homes, Romans 16.5, Colossians 4.15 and elsewhere. And then we get to verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the source of all blessings is that grace, it's the unmerited favor of God. 
And peace, of course, is that state of spiritual well-being which flows from the reception of his grace. Once we've received his grace, naturally peace should go with it. We see these, they're often spoken of as kind of twins in the New Testament. These two are always seen together, grace and peace. And once we have the grace of God, the peace of God should also accompany it. And there is no grace unless God bestows it. And there is no real peace unless it flows forth from God's reconciliation with sinful man. It has to be the grace first and then the peace. It has to be in that order. Verse 4 says, I thank my God for making mention of the always, sorry, I thank my God making mention of the always in my prayers. So Paul is simply saying to Philemon, I pray for you. You know, when I pray, I thank God, I think about you, I think of what you've done. And verse 5, he carries on, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all his saints. It's interesting already, because if you think about the model that we said at the beginning, Philemon here is in the type of God the Father. Paul is a type of Christ in this scenario. And as this prayer is offered up, if you like, to the Father, he bases it on the character of the one being prayed to, or appealed to in this case. You know, and prayer, and we'll talk more about this on Thursday when we look and, and study the whole topic of prayer. But when we pray, it's good and it's very scriptural to go to God based upon his character. Notice what Paul says here. You know, I thank my God, making mention of the always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. So, He's kind of almost sending Philemon up here because he's saying, hey Philemon, we know you're a, a godly man. And, and the love that you have and the faith that you have, we've heard about it. I, I, I thank God continually. And it's not just a love towards Jesus, but it's a love towards all the saints, including this one. It's almost kind of saying, but this is when we pray and we go to God, we should remind God of these things, of God's character. There's nothing wrong with, with praying and reminding God that he's a merciful God, he's a, a patient God. He's a God who's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's a God who's promised to hear us when we call out to him. You know, there's many other attributes of God that we can employ when we go to him in prayer. And we'll look at some scripture examples of that and some of the uh, biblical characters we've got. We've got some great prayers in the Bible, and when they go to God, they start off by reminding God who God is. As if, I mean, God doesn't forget, but it's good to start with that basis. And it's good for us in terms of our faith. God alone is the author of salvation. Paul doesn't congratulate, congratulate Philemon on his conduct as a Christian, but simply says, I thank God because of what I've heard of you and because of the love that you have, because of the faith that you have. And again, this love for the saints, no doubt Paul had heard about this, um, possibly from uh, Ephrathus, who was also a pastor there, um, Colossians 1, 7, uh, verse 8, and chapter 4, verse 12, possibly alludes to that. And Paul is particularly glad that Philemon is so forward in showing love for all the saints because he's about to ask for a demonstration of that love. So Paul introduces seven terms. Love, we see 
in verse 5, 7, 9 and 16. Prayers, verse 22. Sharing, 17. Partner, the good is verse 14. Goodness and heart, and finally refreshed. Those things that are, are introduced, uh, all speaking of the kind of character uh, and the, the nature of Philemon here. Verse 6 goes on, that the, sorry, the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Notice that the good things that are in him are because of Jesus. It's the relationship that Philemon has with Jesus that produces the fruits that Paul is commenting on. If it wasn't in Christ, there would be nothing. The communication, the Greek word is koinonia, or sharing. Uh, again, it may demonstrate what God desires believers to perform. The various scriptures allude to that. And Paul is really preparing Philemon for the request that he's going to get to in verse 14 by acting out what God's grace has first worked in. And Philemon is going to be drawn closer to Christ and serve to glorify him through this. Verse 7, For we have great joy and consolation in thy love. Just, just, just pause, just remember this. As Philemon's reading this, Again, I'm pretty convinced from just the scenario, you can paint the picture in your own minds, but that Zacchaeus is standing there, and Onesimus is standing there. And finally he was reading these words. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love. Just again, reminding him of this love that they've heard about. Because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Just speaking of the way that other believers have been blessed because of this man, because of his life, because of his love, because of his faith. All in Christ, of course. Verse 8. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, as now he gets into it, now he's starting. By the way, the word brother at the end makes an effective appeal which is about to be called on again in the way that he receives an Esimus. He reminds him that he's a brother to him. And now we get into the meat of it. So, wherefore, though I might be much bold, in other words, he's saying, you know what, I could come to you and bring a, a demand, a dictate, but I'm not going to do that. Paul is saying, I, I feel I have the authority or the position in Christ to come and state what I think you should do in this situation, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to enjoin that which is convenient or that which is right, that which is proper. I'm not going to call rank, effectively, is what he's saying. He says, yet for love's sake. That, that love that he's already mentioned a number of times. Yet for love's sake, I'd rather beseech thee, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He once again he doesn't say a prisoner of Rome, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm pleading with you, Just it's me. Paul, you know, the old, the old chap. Verse 10, I beseech thee, I beg you. My, myself, Paul, one who's in prison, I'm pleading with you. For notice what he says. For my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. You know, that must really make straight away as Philemon's reading this just just pause and, 
and thank. Because Paul is now saying, this is the first time that the Philemon is probably aware of this, that this runaway slave that's standing before you is a believer. I, I led him to Jesus Christ. He, he's my son in the faith. And I'm begging you on his behalf. Paul was probably around about 60 uh, at this point. So in one sense, not old as we tend to think of that. But certainly he'd had a rough time. Um, prematurely aged by his sufferings, by all that he endured, all that he's gone through. He goes on and speaks to Philemon of this relationship. He says, which in time past to thee was to thee unprofitable. Speaking of Onesimus, this relationship that Philemon had had with him. He said, he wasn't profitable to you. Arguably, he wasn't a good slave. And certainly the fact that he stole from me and ran away, he wasn't profitable. But now he is Onesimus. That's his name. But now he is what his name says he is. He's become the man that God intended him to be. But now he's profitable to thee and to me. He's saying, it's changed. You know, that which was before has gone. The old has passed away. The new has come. This is now a new man that's standing before you. And he's been really beneficial to me. He's been a real blessing to me. One commentator put it this way. He apparently rendered only grudging service before his flight. Paul seems to be indulging in some playful humor. The slave that had been unprofitable to him in the past had now become profitable to them both. Basically saying, you know, look, you haven't really lost anything. He wasn't much help to you before, but now, oh, now things have changed. Philemon, interestingly enough, means affectionate or one who is kind. It's interesting, isn't it? Even these names play out the whole story of the whole gospel of grace. If the slave is now living up to his name, what about the master? Verse 12, whom... I have sent again. Paul makes it very clear that this is a decision that Paul has made to send Onesimus back. Paul could have kept him. Paul could have kept quiet. You know, possibly even Philemon would never have heard of this. Paul wasn't going to do that. That wouldn't have been right. He says, "Whom I have sent again," and he says, "Thou therefore receive him." That's that pleading. That is. My own bowels. This, this is the one that has been birthed by me, the one that, that I have brought to Christ. Paul is literally saying, receive him as you would receive me. Of course, that is what Christ has done for each one of us, is it not? You know, we can now have boldness to enter God's presence through the blood of Jesus. Yeah, the, 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 the Transaction that took place on the cross where our sin was imputed to Christ and we received his righteousness. Yeah, and we have been adopted as his own child, just as in this kind of relationship, Paul effectively is saying that he's like adopted Onesimus as his own. The uh, the Greek word that's translated bowels there 
is a, better translated probably in English as spleen. <laughs> you get the kind of, Paul is saying, he's part of me. Verse 13, whom I would have retained with me. Paul said, I'd love, really love for this guy to stay with me. Because he's been such a blessing. That in thy stead, he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. In other words, he's saying, you know, Philemon, you're not here with me. You're not able to help me. I know you would if you could. But actually, it would have been great if Onesimus could have stayed with me and he could have ministered on your behalf to me. In the bonds of the gospel, he says. But Onesimus' conversion didn't alter his legal position as a slave. And nor did it cancel the debt to the law or to his master. And Paul was very aware of that. And Paul wasn't going to go outside of the law. But of course it does give him now a new standing before God and before God's people. And that is what Paul is now appealing to Philemon to take into consideration. And Paul says, but without thy mind, without consulting you, without bringing this to your attention, I would do nothing. That thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity. In other words, if he'd have stayed here with me and I wrote to you and told you what had going on, you wouldn't have had a choice in the matter and you'd have kind of been forced into this. But I'm not going to do that. I want you to have the choice. Because he says, but willingly. And that that's how love always has to work, isn't it? You know, the whole basis, why was there a tree in the Garden of Eden? Because God wanted us to love him willingly. Not because there was no other option, but because we've chosen him. And yes, we've gone through some 6,000 years of human history, but when we get to the end of Revelation, we see that that walk with God is restored. For those that willingly want to serve him and walk with him, he will be our God, we will be his people. So it's not of necessity, it's not because we didn't have a choice, it's willingly. And those that will enter into the new Jerusalem and that eternal state will be those that have chosen God. That have said, I know what the world can offer, I don't want any of that, I want Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than anything the world could possibly give me. It's what Elia shared with us this morning. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I will still trust the Lord. And as Job said, yet though he slay me, will I trust him? That kind of relationship that God wants. We're just going to trust him because he's God. We willingly choose that. Again, love can't be compelled. If it is, it's not love in the first place. And so Paul refuses to intrude on a decision that must be Philemon's own. And his reception of Onesimus must not seem to be constrained. And that's important for the church as well that's in his home. It's important that they understand this isn't something that Paul has said must happen. This is something that, that Philemon himself is opting to do, choosing to do. Verse 15, for perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou should receive him forever. There's almost a, can you imagine a little smile in Paul's eye as he says this statement, for perhaps he therefore departed for a season. Paul knows full well that God was in this right from the start. That God was using this. And even though Onesimus had no idea when he stole whatever he stole and he ran away, 
And Lesbos had no idea that at some point in the future, the church here was going to be going through a challenging, difficult time, and God was going to use this individual that had stolen and had run away as an instrument of blessing for this congregation. It's, it's a little bit like that line in the book of Ruth. She happened upon a field, you know, just, just, just by chance. Of course, God engineered the whole thing. There's no such kind of happenings in that sense. For perhaps, I'm sure Paul knew full well that this was all God's engineering. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season. Paul is just saying, you know, look, God's allowed this. That thou should receive him forever. Isn't it better that you don't just have him as a, a servant now, but that he could be a brother for eternity. Look at the blessing that's come as a result of this. And by the way, Paul doesn't condone one of Nesmus' dears. There's no element here that Paul is saying, you know, well, let's just, you know, ignore it, turn a blind eye, don't, forget, don't worry about those things. Instead of focusing on Nesmus' desertion, Paul instead suggests the euphemism which Joseph used in Genesis 45 verse 5 and 50 verse 20, effectively saying that, as Joseph said to his brothers, that you meant it for evil, but God has used it for good. That's exactly what Paul is saying here, that although Onesimus had no godly intent in what he did, God was in this. God was planning, God was using this for his glory, for his purpose. And you'll see again that Paul isn't saying that the debt should be wiped out, just forgotten about. Again, it seems that God's purpose in this brief parting was that Philemon might enter into a new relationship with Onesimus, which not even death could dissolve. And in the here and now, it would be a real blessing to the congregation. And we can assume that Philemon and his family had witnessed to Onesimus, possibly even prayed for him. You know, he left for Rome as a slave and returned as a brother. You know, as a, as a slave owner, as a master, it's very probable that that Witnessing had already taken place. And God now responds, but not in the way that no doubt Philemon and his family had thought would happen. As we said already, God is working all things to good, but how often have our own, how often have our own hardships but a gateway to blessing that we would have otherwise been denied? Yeah, and again, we see problems like this, don't we? And understanding, as we've said already, it's all part of God's plan. I like this. This was just one commentary, put it this way. Do we grant that God is able to answer our prayers in the way that he chooses? Not in the way that we choose. Yeah, when we pray and we ask God for something, do we have the faith to say, Lord, this is what I'm praying for. You answer it whichever way you choose. Because very often it's not the way that we would choose. That God goes about doing what he does. But again, it's so that he will take all the glory. Verse 16, and he says again of, of Anesbos, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a beloved brother, or brother beloved. Again, that, that terminology he'd used of his own relationship with Philemon. And he says, especially to me, but how much more to thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord, Think how much of a blessing this man can be to you as a brother, somebody that now is going to serve you properly and faithfully. You know, Paul has already given teaching. And no doubt in the time that they were together, Paul had 
or we find it in Paul's writings, but Paul no, no doubt has said to Onesimus how a servant should serve a master. And particularly as a Christian, you can imagine the conversation with Paul and Onesimus before this journey takes place. And Paul saying to Onesimus, look, when you get back, you serve him as if you're serving Jesus Christ. You serve him with all your heart. Because that which you do, you do as unto the Lord. So he's coming back as a, as a slave still under the authority of a master, but wanting to glorify Jesus by his faithfulness. And this is what Paul is effectively saying to Philemon here. You know, he's not just a servant. He's above a servant, better than that, because he's a brother. As a brother, he's going to give you all. And he says, especially to me, and Paul's already again alluded to this relationship and how much he'd been blessed by Onesimus, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Again, the relationship between master and slave is now on an entirely different plane because both are in Christ. In one sense, as master and slave, there is that hierarchy. In another sense, in Christ, there is no hierarchy and they are both brothers together. Onesimus was now both Philemon's slave and brother. He had a brother for a slave and a slave for a brother. And so the dilemma that's now presented to Philemon, again, if you said at the beginning, if it was too easy on Onesimus, it might influence other slaves to become Christians, just to influence their masters. You know, they might see this as a great way out of, of being slaves. If it was too hard, Again, it could affect his testimony and the, the ministry in the church that was meeting in his house there in Coloss. You know, again, he's not being asked to release him from being a servant. Romans 6, 16 says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether a sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. You know, speaking of this kind of relationship we have with the things of the world. If we give ourselves to the things of the world, we are servants to those things. If we give ourselves to the things of God, we're servants to those things. Romans 14, 7 to 8 says, For none of us lives to himself, for no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live to the Lord, and whether we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. The, the issue here is that we are all slaves in a sense. We just get to choose whom we serve. You can either serve the flesh, you can serve the world, or you serve God. And in a sense, it matters not who your master is in an earthly sense, because you're either serving the world, the flesh, the devil, or you're serving the Father, Son, and the Spirit. If you're serving God, it doesn't matter who your master is in a fleshly sense, because what you do, you do to God. As we said already, Nisbus may have robbed Philemon of a substantial sum. We're not given the details, perhaps... The cost of this journey to Rome. Somehow he funded this journey. He got there somehow. And now we're going to see that Paul offers to pay for restitution. Paul doesn't expect that debt just to be ignored, to wiped out, be wiped out. You know, this is the whole basis of the gospel. Jesus doesn't come and say, you know, well, if you put your faith in me, I'll, faith in me, I'll, I'll have a word with the Father and we'll just ignore your sin. That's not what happens. That's what so many other religions would like us to believe happens on their particular route to so-called salvation. Even though Paul is urging forgiveness, the debt still must be paid. You know, if God is a holy God, 
God cannot just ignore sin. He can't just put it to one side, turn a blind eye to it. And so Paul here, just as Christ has done for us, is willing to take that debt upon himself. And again, as we said, this is really the heart of the gospel. And this is the beauty of this, this letter, as we see. And just as Christ took our sin upon himself. And Paul says, If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. Receive him as you would me. And in verse 18, this is that key verse. He says, If he has wronged thee or oweth thee anything, put that on mine account. I'll pay. I don't expect to be ignored. I will pay. What a great summary of the gospel that verse is. What Jesus has done for us, Jesus has said, put it on my account. I will pay. The word partner, again, that Greek word, koinonon, or related to koinonia, it just means to have in common. Also translated as communion or fellowship and so on. You know, if you count me therefore as being joined to you, having this relationship with you, that we're one together, that we have this fellowship. Paul is saying that just as we have fellowship, so now extend that fellowship to Onesimus. And because of our relationship, invite him into our family, he's saying. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Again, this incredible transformation. And in Romans 5, 6 to 8 we read, For when ye were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. I've read this before, but again, I just think it's so powerful. Let me just read this to you. This conversation, hypothetically, that took place in heaven, way back before the foundation of the world. God the Father speaks and says to Jesus, My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them, or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ returns, Jesus replies, O my Father, such is my love to and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them, and at my hand shall thou require it. I would rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. But then the father responds and says, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. And the son responds and says, Content, father. Okay. Father, let it be so. 
Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it, and though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Then the comment. Blush, ungrateful believers. Oh, let shame cover your faces. Judge in yourselves now. Has Christ deserved that you should stand with him for trifles? That you should shrink, shrink at a few petty difficulties and complain, this is hard and that is harsh? Oh, if you knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in this, his wonderful condensation for you, could you not do it? You know, you think of what Christ has accomplished for us. You think then of the, the times we, we moan and we complain and we say, this isn't fair or this is too hard or I can't keep doing this. You think what he did for us. In the same way, Paul was willing to take on the whole debt. He says, I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. There again. The words that Jesus has said over each one of us. Jesus has written it with his own hands, with those nail prints in his hands and his feet. And he says, I will repay it. And he says, albeit, I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thy own self besides. Paul just, just highlights here that Philemon owed Paul a debt that he couldn't pay Paul. It's reminding him of the grace of God that had worked in Paul's life to bring Philemon into a relationship with Jesus Christ, which clearly Philemon was so evidently grateful for anyway. Paul just reminding him, you know, almost, I'm not going to mention it, what you owe me. Put that all aside, because I will repay whatever this young man owes you. Paul seems to take up the pen from his amanuensis now, who's writing this letter out. And he kind of signs this IOU to make it legally binding. Again, Paul does not seemingly expect to have it taken upon. Philemon owes Paul far more, and Paul is not expecting him to collect the lesser debt. You know, we have the great example in Matthew 18 of that. It appears that Paul, that led Philemon to Christ, both Philemon and Onesimus had the same spiritual father. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Again, that yea is that kind of gathering up all that Paul has said on behalf of Onesimus, and he has his final personal plea. And since Philemon had refreshed the hearts of the saints with his love and his deeds, remember we saw back in verse 7, Paul now asks Philemon not to neglect this opportunity to refresh Paul's heart. As he done to others, Paul saying, do the same for me by your response to this situation. Again, only the Lord could enable him to show such grace to one who had wronged him. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou will do, that thou also will do more than I say. Paul writes with confidence because he knows Philemon, he knows what the outcome is going to be for this. Again, with the earthly master's obedience to his master in heaven, thus assured, Paul is confident that Philemon will do even more than he says. And so I infer that Paul is requesting Onesimus' freedom. Again, I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's warranted. 
Paul just leaves that down to Philemon. But with all prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. Paul at that point believed that he would get out of prison, which he did on this occasion. And was looking to come and stay with Philemon. And if that happened, we're not given the details of whether it did or didn't take place. What a great time of fellowship that would have been. There, salute thee, Ephrathus, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Again, Ephrathus, Ephrathus was the missionary by whom, instrumentally, the Colossians had been converted to Christianity. And probably the other churches of Lycus had been founded by him. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 7 alludes to that. And this is Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. Uh, it's four of the fellow workers listed here and include their greetings. Uh, it's now 11 years after that breach with Mark, uh, when Mark had left and gone back. And uh, two years later, he tells Timothy to bring Mark with him. Um, so, you know, at this point, probably Mark, who's mentioned there, Marcus, had, had written that gospel. Remember when we studied Mark's gospel, we talked about the fact that Paul, sorry, that Mark had kind of become close friends with Peter, and just probably just so overwhelmed by the things that Peter was sharing. He goes, I just got to write this down. And he writes it down. It becomes the gospel of Mark. Effectively, it's Peter's gospel because it's Peter's narrative. Paul, Mark was just writing it down. That goes out around the, the, the Christian world. Paul, no doubt, gets a copy of that. Becomes a great tool in terms of witnessing and evangelizing and so on. And even though they'd had that dispute some years before, by this point, Paul recognizes that Mark is a fellow laborer, a fellow worker. Aristarchus of Thessalonica, but again Paul's companion on his third missionary journey. And of course Luke, we know, remained with Paul until the end. And he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. So these kind of key figures are mentioned in this letter to Philemon. Again, seemingly though they were there or around about the 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 uh, the area Philemon knew them. They knew Philemon, and Paul is saying to to greet them. Demas, of course, later would desert Paul and seemingly abandon the faith. Interestingly, Calvin makes this comment. John Calvin makes a comment. He says, "If one of Paul's assistants became weary and discouraged and was afterwards drawn away by the vanity of the world." Let none of us rely too much on our own zeal lasting even one year, but remembering how much of the journey still lies ahead. Let us ask God for steadfastness. Some real wisdom in that statement. You know, Demas at this point is listed among these other great men of the faith. Gavin just simply says, look, if somebody in that kind of company could stumble and could fall, let none of us get too carried away. And don't let our own zeal and our enthusiasm Convince us that we're okay. No, no, we still need the grace of God every day. And this ends. Verse 25. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. After addressing Philemon in the singular in verse 4, Paul reverts to the plural your as he prays now that Christ's grace may rest on the entire community and all those that are going to hear this letter being read and they're going to meet for worship, and they're going to see the result. They're going to see this relationship restored. Again, that word grace, a very fitting conclusion 
uh, trademark that Paul always puts at the end of his epistles. You know, this letter, you know, we, we see the personal value in the light of Paul's character, the ethical value, focusing on what is right, providential value, God is behind and above all events. The practical value, application of the highest principles to the commonest affairs. Evangelical value, the encouragement to seek and to save the lowest. Social value, the presentation of the relation of Christianity to slavery and all unchristian institutions. Spiritual value, we see the analogy between it and the gospel. To conclude... As Martin Luther said, we are all anesthetists. Yet we're all that runaway slave that have been restored. And it is a beautiful picture of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Again, it was Christ who says on our behalf, charge that to my account. Receive them as you would receive me. And it's because Christ did that to the Father that we meet here. That we have this relationship that we do. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for this reminder again that you took upon yourself all the debt that we owed, that you were willing to come and rescue us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Oh, that Father, you have given us this new life. You have brought us in. You've made us part of your family. You've welcomed us in. We are now joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, help us to extend that same love and grace and mercy to others. Help us to be patient with others who may fail us or let us down. Help us to show, Lord, your goodness in our dealings with our brothers and sisters. Help us, Lord, never to give up on people. Lord, even a runaway slave who'd stolen can be brought to a place where they accept you. Lord, help us never to come to a place where we think it's too late for any individual. Lord, your grace is sufficient in all of our weaknesses. We just thank you for this time this morning, Lord, and we just pray you continue to stir our hearts as we respond in worship to your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.